Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 260 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start today's show with a quote from Nelson Mandela. It always seems impossible until it's done. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hiya, great to have you here, great to be here. Ah, it's March already, it's almost halfway through. Can't believe it, it's gone fast, isn't it? Still, uh, things are looking good. Weather's getting warmer, the nights are getting longer here in the UK, and I'm having a bath on Sunday. I'm not smelly, it's just, I haven't actually got a bath in my apartment. Some sacrifices you have to make, and I know this is first world problems really, but it's Mother's Day on Sunday, my daughter's got a bath, and I'm jumping in hers. Bath bombs are ready, looking forward to that. Anyway, got a great show lined up for you today. Great interview. Been looking forward to this one for months. Been trying to get her on the show for months. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this one, I want to ask you a serious question. Have you got a signature talk? Just so we're on the same page, a signature talk is a talk that shares the why behind what you do, shares your unique take on the problem you solve, and leads your audience to see the value of what you offer, be that a book product, service or new idea. If you haven't got one or you've got one that you're not sure about, maybe doesn't get you the results that you want, then I'd like to invite you to a masterclass that I'm running next week. The outcome is simple. By the time you leave this two-hour workshop, you'll have clarity about your message and you'll leave knowing the exact ingredients you need for a talk that gets you unreasonably excited to share it and gets your audience into action. If you want to come and work with me live, then head over to saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass and grab your spot. Okay, enough of baths and signature talks. Let's get into today's show. I've been working with my guest today for a while and I've been trying to get her on the show for ages like I said and she finally said yes and the reason I'm so excited is that Catherine Wheatman speaks about a topic that a lot of organizations and indeed politicians want to ignore. You could say that she's chosen the path of most resistance and that's because Catherine is an expert and advisor in the area of regeneration and the circular economy. She talks to organisations about the need to ditch outdated business models and go beyond current thinking. And she also challenges current practices around product life cycles and materials and shares practical and meaningful strategies and plans for becoming more sustainable in a world with dwindling natural resources. And all of this is so that these organisations are able to survive and prosper in the changing environmental and consumer landscape. And of course, they also contribute to averting the wider peril waiting for us all. Catherine is an award-winning author, keynote speaker and circular economy strategic advisor. 
and she's fascinated by the sweet spot where strategy, stakeholder value and sustainability come together. Her award-winning A Circular Economy Handbook uh, is now in its second edition and she hosts the popular Circular Economy podcast with listeners in over 150 countries. So she's been speaking on this topic for over 10 years and over that time she's evolved her content and delivery to better connect with her audience where they are in order for them to start on the journey to where they need to be. So if you're looking for a great example of someone who makes the complex and abstract simple, engaging and relatable, then you will love this episode. Not only will you broaden your knowledge in the area of the circular economy, but you'll pick up some fantastic speaking tips to boot. Without further ado, let's hear from Catherine. Catherine, the first thing I want to know is what started you on your circular economy journey? Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of how far back do I want to go? And I won't give you all the, all the boring and gory details on this. But thinking back about my interest in sustainability, which kind of started with food, after a dodgy bottle of water on holiday in the 1980s, which then turned into a food intolerance that went on for ages. And at that point in time in the 80s, food intolerance just wasn't, you know, an accepted thing in the medical profession. Um, And that kind of made me realise, in retrospect, that experts often don't want to look at information that's outside their normal frame of reference. And also that I could find out enough to be dangerous, as one of my bosses used to say, you know, kind of getting enough information to be dangerous on a topic. So I kind of set off on my own path. And I can't remember how I came um, up on this this guy, but there was somebody on uh, Harley Street in, in London who was looking into food intolerance. And I kind of, you know, read about this and thought, well, that fits exactly. So that, you know, kind of got me on the path to... But, but, but as part of the food intolerance thing, it meant I had to read all the ingredients labels. And I was really shocked to see how how many things were in simple, simple, you know, even muesli bars and stuff um, and how many I'd never heard of. And that seemed to be some kind of complicated additive or chemical. So that really got me thinking about what was in food. And then um, quite a long time afterwards, um, in 2003, I was really into mountain biking. I was in a, a, a kind of um, orienteering type race one day waiting to cross a road and got hit by a car um, and kind of ended up uh, in intensive care for 10 days and in hospital for five weeks with multiple injuries and lots of complications and a quite difficult path to recovery. And my one big goal was to get back to the level of mountain biking that I'd been at before. That was kind of the driving factor because it wasn't just the sport. It was, you know, how I spent most of my social life and holidays and, and everything else. So the experiences of that, dealing with uh, an MRSA infection, lots of complicated breaks, um, and even trying to adapt the bike um, to deal with, you know, now I couldn't bend my one of my legs more than 90 degrees, and you need 110 degrees of bend to pedal. <laughs> so all these kind of things um, set me off on paths trying to work out how I was going to solve this particular problem. But the same thing happened that lots of experts didn't want to look outside their existing frame of reference. But this time it was easier to find out, you know, on the inter- now there was the internet, so it made it a lot easier to find out what else I could do and to kind of go a bit off piste. So I guess that, that kind of um, embedded this feeling that, you know, people like to, to stick to the, to the kind of path that they know 
and subconsciously I must have adopted that in my work. So that kind of um, again got me thinking about about um, diet, and um, I think I was just starting to hear lots more about sustainability issues. And then it sort of dawned on me that in the work I was doing at DHL Supply Chain, we had lots of you know big companies as clients, big electrical retailers, supermarkets, breweries, chemical companies, you know automotive, everything. And all I was doing at work in helping them develop better supply chain strategies or get more efficient at their operations was I was just helping them get better at selling more stuff that we didn't need that was all wrecking the planet. So in effect, while I was banging on about, you know, sustainability and organic food and all the rest of it, I was kind of contributing to the problem. So I was thinking, well, some, you know, there must be a way past this. There must be a way that business can do things in a better way and still make a profit. So that kind of set me off on a, another research quest of, you know, what was out there. Uh, I did loads and loads of research because I was terrified about um, standing up in front of somebody who was going to pull the rug from under me with a really clever question or, you know, climate deniers and all the rest of it. Um, so loads and loads of research got really depressed. And the only way forward seemed to be that we were all just going to have to have less. And, you know, who was going to buy into that? But along the way, I was coming across new bits of, of terminology and, and um kind of intellectual and and scientific jargon and one of those terms was the circular economy and when I started trying to look into that which was quite early on in the in the sort of discourse I came across the first book published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation aimed at school kids called Sense and Sustainability by Ken Webster and Craig Johnson and when I read that it was just like, you know, the, the lights went on and suddenly I could see a way forward, a way that we could just do things differently, meaning that people could have nice things and things that we need and everybody could have a better life, but we didn't have to wreck the planet at the same time. Um, and all this was possible just by doing things differently and yet still being profitable and having a resilient business. So that was kind of you know, in, in a very long rambling way, how it all started. I love that. And I love the title of that book. How clever is that? Sense mm. of sustainability. I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think people have this impression that in order to, to, to do you know, good, good by the environment, we have to go around in hair shirts, you know, flailing ourselves on the back but that you know that isn't say saleable to most people, and I love the fact that you are, are charting a path that shows that it is possible to you know yes to, you have to do things differently, but it is possible to have nice things and you know look after ourselves via the planet for the longer term. That's brilliant. So so you've you discovered this this alternative path for organisations. You were still working for a company at that point. So what happened next? What made you go all in? Because now today you are a circular economy expert. Um, and what has happened since? Yeah, well, lots happened since. But but just to push back, and uh, this is another, well, it's, it could be the same boss who, who had the, you know, know enough to be dangerous phrase. Um, but he used to banish the word expert and he always said, you know, an expert's X is a has been and spurts a drip, drip under pressure. So I prefer <laughs> specialist in the circular economy. Um, so, yeah, once I, I, I'd got all this info and I'd already pitched for a talk to a senior um, 
business group, like a supply chain group that I was part of. And I'd done a talk to them and it went down quite well. And I started then identifying all the circular economy things that we could be doing as DHL for our clients. And I was getting some traction, but it was just all too slow. And, you know, people wanted to focus on business as usual and tweaking this, that and the other. And so I was getting really frustrated and probably becoming um, a bit too vocal with that. And then we were having several reorganisations and uh, in one redundancy was on the table. Um, but I chickened out and kind of found myself another job in, in what was called the global products team, which was all about finding things that we could develop. So I was kind of thinking I can use this to really promote the circular economy. Um, but my boss just was not interested and I was banging my head against a brick wall. And I also had this, you know, as soon as I'd accepted the job and turned down the redundancy, I was kind of kicking myself. It was one of those things that, you know, you wimped out, Catherine, should have gone for this. So I was just thinking, well, there's bound to be another one in the next year or so. You know, I'm not going without, <laughs> without a, now I've had the offer of redundancy. So, yeah, so the next next thing that came up, I thought, right, this is it. I'm jumping in with both feet um, and sort of had this naive sense that, you know, people must be wanting to know how to do this. Um, and so that's that's the path that I started off on, just trying to help businesses adopt more circular approaches and to understand what it's all about, what the circular economy isn't, which is, you know, just recycling and new materials, and really try to get to the heart of how the circular economy can unlock a new way forward for business. Cool. And just just for a time frame, when was it? When did you go all in? When did you say, that's it? I'm jumping in. Yeah, so the end at the end of 2013. So I did my first big talk in 2011, um, and then at the end of 2013, um, you know, that's when I jumped all in and, and started the business, um, you know, and and came up with a name of rethink because I think it is all about just rethinking the business strategy, reimagining the way forward. And I didn't want to tie myself to the circular economy in case something better came along. Um, which I think it now is in terms of regenerative strategies. You know, we need to go further than circular. And also I wanted to be able to bring in other elements like ethics and fairness and, you know, different business models uh, around employee ownership and cooperatives and that kind of thing. So I kind of wanted to leave that open. I mean, things, I would imagine things have changed, just certainly from what I've seen, that now people are asking and now people are interested, but what, where are we? 2013, we're what, nine, nine years on? No, almost 10 mm. years on. Now. And uh, we should have really been starting back when <laughs> in that 2013, because we're, we're, we're sort of reaching crisis point. And I think you described the challenge that we face as a super wicked problem. And I wondered if you could explain what you mean by that? Mm, sure. Well, first of all, it's not my invented term. I wish it was, but it's not. Wicked problems were first defined um, back in the 70s by two, United, uh, two American scholars, Rittle and Weber. And they sort of brought together problems that have a number of characteristics, including that each problem is unique. The problem's a symptom of other problems. So that makes it really complicated. There's no exhaustive list of potential solutions you know you can go on trying to find things that partially solve it and they don't stop so you'll never properly solve the problem 
And then a super wicked problem is all of that, plus it's really urgent. So when we stop to think about our current problems, and I characterise that as being on a fragile planet with finite and depleted resources, nature that's being destroyed by us at a frightening rate, and people everywhere under all sorts of pressure, that seems to exactly fit that definition of a super wicked problem. Absolutely. And I feel like this is like when you used to think about the universe. I don't know if you ever did this. So I used to like think about the universe and I'd be there and I'd be like, oh my God, this is too much, too much. Switch off, switch off and, you know, just move on. And I think that's where a lot of people feel uh about this problem at the moment you know you you start to to see to see it and then it it just feels so complicated and it feels like you as an individual and perhaps even a business you know business it, it just feels like you can't make a, a dent in this and so we sort of go back to putting our heads in the sand or ignoring it and I think that's one of the big challenges to overcome because as soon as you go down you know we talked about this before as soon as you go down the sort of fear route you know and all of this bubbles up people just just throw up their hands and run away how how have you been sort of able to overcome or been thinking about overcoming that mm, I think you're absolutely right and that's something that comes up for for me um, I was talking to my husband this morning on our our walk, something came up and um, he he used the, you know, well, we're all, he swore, but essentially, you know, we're all doomed <laughs> anyway. Um, and my kind of pushback on that was that more and more people are doing things like me, trying to make a difference in your own life uh, at work and, you know, by talking about it. So I think there are, there's a growing number of people who want to do the right thing. There's also the sort of power of small actions, you know, voting with the money in your pocket by choosing to spend money with companies that are doing the right thing, choosing to not spend on something where actually we're just being shamed into thinking that, you know, if we don't have this, we're not, we're not cool or we're not doing the right thing. We saw all that with the pandemic, didn't we, where suddenly, you know, you weren't being a good parent if you weren't disinfecting everything to within an inch of its life, even though, you know, a bit of vinegar and <laughs> bicarb would do the same thing. So all this kind of shaming or symbols of success, you know, where we're, we're told that if we don't have this, then we're not going to look successful. So opting out of that and deciding to spend your money in more purposeful ways sends really good signals back to the businesses, both to the businesses that are doing better things and to the businesses that are losing customers. So I think that's incredibly important. And then there's also the cognitive dissonance element to this. And what I found personally is that just just as with that first decision to go all in on this, but with all the tiny decisions that I've made to stop buying whatever, um, to recycle, you know, find a, find a way to recycle something. Every time I've done that, there's a realisation that actually that was making, not doing it was making me really uncomfortable and making me feel dishonest with myself. And once you do it, you start to feel better and you then get energised to do the next thing and to talk about it. And really at the heart of this, it's about caring, isn't it? Caring for the things, caring about what we buy, caring for things when we've got them and caring for nature that we utterly depend on for everything. 
And once you're doing that, as people who are in caring professions find, it's really fulfilling. And even though you know there's lots more you could be doing, as long as you're kind of moving forward in baby steps, that helps you feel much more positive about your place in the world is is my kind of take on it. Yeah, and I want to talk a bit more about this in a little bit. Um, so to sort of examine some of these myths and stuff about, you know, about um, sustainability, regeneration and all of that good stuff. But I want to touch on the one idea. So you focus very much on working with businesses and you've got to make a case that is compelling to businesses. So if you had to sum up in one idea what you need businesses to understand, what would that be? How would you do that? First of all, it can't. this can't be solved. This is a wicked problem. It can't be solved by doing a bit less bad or by recycling stuff. It needs system scale change where we're reimagining business strategies, you know, from from the very heart of the of the business so that we're thinking about healing the future instead of stealing it. And I see circular and regenerative approaches as the key tools to help businesses move forward on that by creating deeper levels of value for all the stakeholders, customers, employees, investors, the communities around your sites, everybody by shrinking the footprint of the business the waste and pollution and and emissions and by and through that becoming more resilient sustainable and profitable so it's kind of about thinking you know how can i make products that last that have a life of their own and how can i find customers who are going to become my super fans so i've got customers for life instead of this pipeline where we're trying to just sell more and you know push more more through it every year and i i think it, the, the case is compelling, isn't it? Because this isn't just about doing good for others. It's about making this business last because, you know, you and I often talk about Kodak in in relation to this issue because, you know, it, it does sound, you know, from a business perspective, all those things you said sound like, oh, that sounds like a a lot of work, you know, so that I can tick the green box. But it isn't just about ticking the green box, is it? What It's it's about other stuff as well. Can you elaborate on that? What, yeah. Why should they? What's the compelling argument? So it's all about becoming future fit. And I think in the course of trying to write the next book, which is going to help businesses make the business case, I've tried to kind of sum up where I think we are. And I think over the last decade or so the landscape has changed utterly and so in the last century it seemed like you know a rolling landscape with endless new horizons to go and find new markets with customers to sell to and new resources to exploit and everything seemed to have infinite possibilities but now that landscape's changed you know it's 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 full of rocks and crevices and As soon as you start to look into any resource, I've just been doing a blog about lithium for electric cars. You know, that's not only is that essential if we want to have all electric cars, but it's essential for all sorts of other products as well, like glass and lubricants. And so everybody's kind of competing for a resource that isn't in short supply, but the consequences of mining it are horrific for people and the environment. So you know, we kind of have this, well, we'll just get more lithium, but the, but the consequences are awful. So 
every resource that you think about using up has consequences, whether that's destroying habitats, you know, and we need more nature. We need nature to be drawing down carbon. We need nature to be cleaning up after us, as well as providing us with food and fibre. So everything we're doing kind of has all the, you know, it's, it's the wicked problem again. So it's, it's about thinking of the future and thinking that the, it seems to me the only way forward is that we have to stop pushing stuff through this pipeline and trying to pump ever more resources, energy, water in at the beginning and ever more waste and pollution out at every stage of the process as well as at the end of life. So the only way we'll do that is by making products last longer. And everybody then starts thinking, oh, well, that's hard. But in the last five years or so, I've helped my parents replace electrical items in their kitchen, a fridge, a cooker, a hob, that they put in in the 1970s. And these weren't top-end things. These were just everyday bog-standard brands, and yet they've lasted for 40 years. We haven't, we haven't had a kind of, you know, <laughs> a brain failure that stopped us designing things to last. Companies have just decided to follow a planned obsolescence route or make everything fashionable. You know, apparently sofas are now a fashion item that you're supposed to replace every couple of years. You know, it's, it's just all about this myth that selling more is what makes businesses successful. But we can't keep selling more when we're on a finite planet with, fi you know, finite resources and where we're, we're busy undermining the very foundations of society. You know, we're using up resources so they're no longer available and we're wrecking the very thing that we depend on. We're destroying nature, which is what we utterly depend on for clean air, fresh water that's safe to drink and, of course, healthy food with nutrients. And on top of that, we need nature to help us lock up all that carbon and methane that we're putting into the atmosphere. So we utterly depend on nature, and yet we're just, you know, destroying it without thinking. So, so thinking about the future and thinking, okay, let's imagine we are on this, you know, imagine you're on a little island, then how are you going to make sure that you don't pollute that island and, you know, use up all the resources, chop down all the trees and end up with nothing? It's that kind of thinking. It's not, it's not, difficult thinking it's just the scale of the scale of change and you know we've talked about Kodak and that was that was a great example of a company that could see the change coming you know they'd even employed the guy who invented the digital camera so they were they had first mover advantage but what they tried to do was use digital to keep people printing photos because film and printing was the cash cow so they couldn't get away from this idea that they had to keep people printing photos. And yet they'd failed to understand what customers really wanted all along, which was to be able to share their stories. People weren't interested in having a bit of paper with a photograph on it. They wanted to, you know, show it to people and they could show it to people online on social media. And so, you know, now that's so obvious. But Kodak were kind of locked into this. We can't let we can't let go. It's this it's this kind of um what's the phrase for it? The the um it's a fallacy, it's a sunk cost fallacy, you know, that we've got this thing, we can't let that go. So their misguided strategy was all about, you know, let's bundle it together. Whereas Fuji, the number two, who also depended heavily on film business and, and printing, they saw the future much more clearly and realised that this was going to be really difficult. So they embarked on a massive transformation project and used all their knowledge in how to make these chemicals to find new markets for those chemicals and become much more diverse and through that more resilient. 
And so Kodak ended up in the space of a decade going from market leader to filing for bankruptcy, whereas Fuji increased their revenue by 50%. Wow. And I think this is, there's two sort of things that come up for me around this. One is going back to that frame of reference thing. It's like people get fixated on one sort of resource path. So like the lithium now, oh, it's got to be lithium or oil. It's got to be oil. And and, and then there's sort of let's let's just literally go all in on that instead of looking at alternatives. And it's almost like it, it, if you've got a business – um, I don't, this is just me, simple terms for me. You want to diversify your income streams to protect your business and make it sustainable in the long term. But we also need to do that at the front end in terms of the resources that we use to make those products. But we don't seem to do that. We just mm. sort of get fixated on one thing. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, around status. Now, when I I find when you look at problems and pain of customers and stuff like that, when you peel back the layers of a problem, it always comes down to status. And, you know, my parents, uh, we talked about your parents, my parents uh, have lumped in all of the environment uh, and vegan and all of this stuff together in a sort of package of they they like using that awful term woke but uh so they've put it all together in that but and uh, you know they're quite modern thinking they want the new thing instead of like we've got to you know and i think the change is happening we want to make it sexy to have things longer term rather than to keep chopping and changing but it's it's systemic we're conditioned to want new to keep up with the joneses do you think that it can change in time? Do, do you think that the change is happening? I think it is, but I think it's, is, is it fast enough? That's the question. Yeah, I guess, I guess at the moment it's not fast enough, but these things can change overnight, can't they? If we think about smoking, uh, drink driving, things like that, that have been socially acceptable in the past and then, you know, become not so, that things can, can change quite, quite quickly. And there are, you know, there are lots of things that that governments could be doing to encourage that. Um, thinking about drink driving, there was an example where um, in America they were finding it really hard to get people to be the nominated driver who'd stay sober, and so they they just encouraged um, Friends and another sitcom um, to just build it into the scripts. And within a few months, things had changed because suddenly it was normalised and and people could see role models doing that. And so suddenly it became cool. So there's lots of ways. And I'm really encouraged by some of the stories I'm hearing about youngsters. Um, just this morning, again, on the, on the same walk, um, we were talking about the um, the daughter of some uh, local friends we've got um, who's um, only buys stuff off Vinted, doesn't buy anything new, and neither do most of her friends. So I think this is really interesting because this is youngsters deciding, deciding that their identity is their own identity it's unique they're going to be more imaginative creative and i think that's probably much more rewarding than just copying what some influencers warn that you can you can buy and then when it comes through the door you realize actually it's it's shoddily made it's awful materials and once you've washed it washed it once it looks like a, like a rag so 
people are starting to discover that there's a different way. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'd love to see is marketing literacy courses. You know, we've got carbon literacy now helping people understand, you know, where carbon comes from and how we get rid of it. So marketing literacy where people understand how they're being manipulated and can choose to then step back and think, well, I'm not buying into that, into this into this myth that unless I'm disinfecting everything within an inch of its life, you know, I'm not being a good parent. Love that. <laughs> that is my one win, actually. I've got my mum on Vinted, but uh, <laughs> she's... She's buying loads, though. We still, she's still doing loads of shopping that she doesn't need, but she, at least she's doing it on vintage, so those, those are a little win. Um, so, so the <laughs> next stage, then, is to get her to be re reselling it on vintage or donating it. And Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, so I think we've, we've sort of really started to make the case, but I'm going to push you even further. So for a company looking to lead in the area of sustainability rather than following what are those business benefits mm. so first of all you're reducing the risk of your products and services becoming unaffordable and unavailable you know because you're reducing your dependency on these finite and under pressure resources whether those are natural materials you know because land and water are finite um or metals and minerals so there's there's just massive competition so the less you need to, to produce every year to make your profits, the less reliant you are on that and the less you're likely to be disrupted because somebody has suddenly got more money than you to pay for these resources. You know, we've seen that happening through the, and we're now seeing, you know, resource wars around this. So this is big scale and it's affecting everything. So there's reducing those risks. There's also the risk with these long supply chains of unlawful activities. Uh, further up, whether that's labour exploitation or, um, you know, pollution or somebody saying that something's recycled when it turns out not to be. And then even better, customers are going to love what you're doing. And people kind of expect businesses to be doing the right thing already and are shocked when they find out that they're not. So the more that you're, you know, telling people what the journey is, it's not it's not going to be a quick fix. But if you set your mind in a in a direction and set out your stall, your kind of, you know, your guiding principles and then tell people how you're hoping to, to move towards that and what actions you're taking, then that can give everybody confidence that you are going in the right direction. And that's not about greenwashing and so on. It's being honest with, you know, what you're doing that you think is an improvement and the areas that you think still need to be addressed. And even better... Um, you know, that's going to bring good suppliers, good investors, people who are on the same journey as you. And you can kind of build collaborative partnerships through that with everybody pushing in the same direction. I love that. That's great. And OK, so we've talked about circular economy. We've talked we've we've used these terms. We've used the term regeneration. Some people might still be going, well, what does it actually mean? Is it just about vintage clothes and upcycling furniture what what does that actually mean mm. and i want to sort of talk to that sure so i like to talk about three strategies and what we're trying to do is keep products components and materials in the system in a loop if you like so the first strategy is designing everything to last longer ideally through being repairable and even upgradable 
and designing things to have, you know, emotional attachments, not emotional obsolescence, so that people will care for them. The second strategy is finding ways to get more use from underutilized objects. So if we take the example of a car, typically in Europe, a car's parked up for 23 hours in every day. So by having the car in a sharing system, we could get a lot more use out of that car, and therefore we need fewer cars in the system overall. And there are lots of ways of doing this. You know, you could you could hire a car, you could take an Uber. There's even an app that allows people in a neighborhood to share a few cars between them and to and to book out the car so you can kind of have collective ownership. So there's you know this kind of sharing strategy. So that could be renting, paper use, or literally sharing. There are libraries of things where you can go and borrow um entertaining equipment, you know, hi-fi for a party, power tools, all that kind of stuff. And then the third strategy is building systems to keep things in circulation. So once something's come to the end of its useful life, how do we get it back into the system by doing the least amount that we have to? We don't want to be recycling things because that takes up loads of energy, often uses loads of chemicals and can have just as big a footprint and you know end up with more expensive materials. So ideally we can have a product that just needs refurbishing or maybe even remanufacturing where certain components are replaced. I'm talking to you over a remanufactured laptop that I got from Circular Computing a couple of years ago. So it's a high-end laptop, um, a Dell. It looks brand new. It's 97% of the performance of a new one, cost me about half as much, and its footprint is much less. And Circular Computing have now got a British Standard kite mark that gives everybody confidence in knowing that this is going to be you know, just as reliable, if not more reliable, than a new one, because it's actually gone through more testing than a new one. So there are all these kind of strategies where we can just keep every product or the component, you know, in in the loop for a lot longer. And of course, designing things differently enables you to do all of that much more effectively and efficiently. So if we're designing with that in mind, with refurbishment, with remanufacturing and finally recycling in mind, then we might be using slightly more expensive processes like using screws that can come out instead of glues. Um designing material using materials that aren't bonded together um, so it's easier to separate things at the end of life so there's a long way to go it's not you know it's not a quick fix but setting out on those three strategies and then thinking what's the first thing we can do to move towards that and baby steps can include just taking one part of your product range or one segment of the market and trialing something um, and you know kind of seeing what happens what what are the unintended consequences how are we going to get around that what does it do to our cash flow all those kind of things need to be explored. But, you know, the later you start, the more likely it is that you'll be disrupted by somebody else having got there before you. Those are really clear, Catherine, really clear strategies. And I particularly loved what you said about you know, c- creating an emotional attachment to things so that people want to look after it. And I know you and I have been talking about a story uh, that you're looking to share where this really, I think, comes to the fore you know and and, you know something that I always say and this is something that marketers actually use but we can actually use this in a good way is that something that has a story attached to it has a higher perceived value 
than something something else. So you know those uh, those things that are um, auctioned off at Sotheby's because they belong to a celebrity or something. You know, go for incredible amounts. And I wondered if you could share the story of of the the furniture in this context, so people can see a practical example of how this actually works. Mm. So I'm guessing that you're talking about a company called Ripe Office, R-Y-P-E, that started in London. And uh, Greg Lavery, the, the guy who founded it, was a sustainability consultant and had been working on industrial manufacturing strategies for the government and so on um, back in the um, you know 2010 onwards. And we met at a, um, a sustainability event at, um, at Cambridge University. So I'd been listening to him one year talking about the manufacturing strategy. And then the next year, there he was talking about this new business that he'd started because he got so frustrated by not seeing other companies doing it. And he realised that office furniture was a really good um, way into a circular economy business because so much was being thrown away and office refits were becoming ever more frequent. And what they've done is taken high quality office furniture and refurbished and remanufactured it so it looks like new. But they've used really creative design skills to kind of um, reuse the existing furniture, bring in new furniture, make furniture from waste materials, but make it all look fantastic. And some of the furnitures come from really interesting places, you know, well, well-known um, companies. And there's even some furniture that was featured on, a, on the set of a James Bond film. So there's lots of stories behind this. And um, he was telling me about a firm of lawyers who'd um, put in, you know, they'd got a, a kind of conference room with a great big table in there and it needed replacing. It was, it was uh, battered. So they had a furniture made out of recycled materials. And it was obvious that, you know, there's all these different colours in it. And that gave them a conversation piece with clients that were coming into that room. And they found that it kind of broke down some of the barriers and started to get people to, to be more trustful of the lawyers. So it went a lot further than just a nice story as a conversation starter. It really started to help people understand that these guys had, you know, some, some deeper values and a purpose beyond profit and, and so on, and that they were trying to do all sorts of things to make their business more sustainable. So, you know, it, was, it, it had so many different strands of, of benefit. I love that. And and I've seen pictures of this stuff and it looks really sexy. It looks mm. much more sexy than the original stuff, you know, and the, the sort of like homogenous stuff that you can get from, from you know, brand new. So um, I love that. And yeah, stories, well, we always talk about stories, you and I, but, the, you know, when they you can attach a story to something physical and tangible and I you know I know from when I worked in corporate it, people used to complain about the waste mm. and I was in public sector they'd get chuck a load of furniture into the skip that was completely fine and uh, people used to get upset about it so it's that's a potential quick win for companies um, and then on you know on top of doing all the other stuff that we've talked about. Yeah and I think that's that's a, that's a good point to make because people's mindsets have changed you know, back in the, the 80s and 90s, we were a bit more persuaded that success was about, you know, symbols and tokens. And when I was at Kellogg's, you know, um, people used to nickname the head office Trump Towers because it looked so, so flashy. And that was kind of a symbol of success. But it was also a bit embarrassing to kind of <laughs> to, to be there because it looked like you just got money to throw away. 
So, you know, how, how efficient were we as a business if we were chucking all this money away? And now I think people are starting to question the values of the business if this is the kind of show-offy stuff that a business is doing. So it can really undermine the trust between employees and the management team. You know, if you're kind of making these decisions where a little bit of effort could have kept something in use for longer, we could have had that money to spend on, I don't know, staff training or, you know, working with the community or whatever it is, investing in the business, instead of just this kind of easy, well, let's just chuck this out and buy new. People don't like to see that waste and it and it starts to build distrust, I think. Absolutely. Um, towards the end of the last thing that we were talking about, you mentioned about recycling and the cost and the footprint of recycling. Now, so many of us have been conditioned to believe that recycling is a great thing to do for the environment. And it's one of those myths, I think, that uh, that we've bought into or been you know, told to buy or suggested to buy into. And I, I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more about some of the other myths that people might believe that are actually uh, causing problems rather than helping. Mm. So I think it's worth unpicking the recycling a little bit more because there's another issue that's starting to bubble up, which is around the the toxins in the materials. And um, just this week on LinkedIn, I posted something or shared shared something about a, a class action in the US from baseball players who'd been playing on AstroTurf and had now got they'd all got a similar quite um, rare form of cancer. There are all sorts of toxins in plastics. And if we're going to be using those, whether that's in recycled fabrics that we then wear next to our skin or in food containers or in, you know, beauty products and shampoo containers, then we risk those toxins ending up in our in our systems. So I'm not saying give up recycling and send it all to landfill. What I'm saying to businesses is recycling is not the answer. It costs a lot of money. There could be all sorts of unforeseen consequences coming up from using recycled materials and it needs lots of energy and chemicals. So at the end of the day, all you've done is kind of keep the products pumping through the pipeline at the same rate. You've just replaced some of the materials, but you've made very little progress towards shrinking your footprint. So it's, it's about going back to those bigger strategies. And then in, in terms of some of the other myths, I guess where I'm seeing what I call false solutions are in these new generation materials. So it might be that somebody's switching from using a plastic or another um, material made from finite products like metals and minerals to a biological material. You know, we saw the a hype around uh, biofuels and so on. But the problem with that is we don't have loads of land left to go and convert to agriculture. We need to be doing less agriculture. So those things are okay if they're using the byproducts of something that's already essential for food. And we have to be careful that we're not subsidising something that we that we don't really want more of, like using sugar cane. You know, that in a way that's subsidising the sugar industry, which is another addictive product. So again, it's kind of thinking through the what ifs on that. And then um, some of the other things are ending up with a blend of materials. So if you're blending what are called biological materials, so food, fibres, timber are biological, you know, they, they grow. And then what 
what's called technical materials in circular economy uh, terms is anything that's come from the Earth's crust, so metals, minerals, fossil-based plastics. When we blend those together, we end up with something that can't go back to nature. It's now full of toxins and, and you know possibly heavy metals and so on. So we must try and keep those two flows separate. And that means designing products differently. It doesn't mean that you can't combine them, but when we have, say, blended textiles, that becomes very difficult to recycle into a new textile. And we can't compost it because it's full of you know, plastics, polyester or whatever. So this is a really key thing. And a lot of the exciting, new, more mistakes, more sustainable, in inverted commas, materials, particularly in, in textiles, um, it's either using more land by using um, timber, so um, cellulosic fibres, or it's a blend of something, and that means it's not recyclable, and then it's still got all the plastics in. So those are the kind of worrying things where there's a whole load of PR, but it's not really sending us in the right direction and it could be even making something worse so this is one of those things where people will be going oh my goodness i don't know what to do <laughs> i don't know what you know it's like what what am i supposed to do then so so there are some good things coming through then um but we've got to be careful about how we use products together even um mm. or resource materials together mm. and i can send a resource through afterwards it's it's um something that I'll be discussing on a future podcast, but there are toolkits now emerging around, um, you know, freely shared toolkits to help companies choose better materials and design differently. And one of those toolkits is is especially aimed at replacing plastics with other things, whether that's replacing a plastic that degrades with something that will be more recyclable into into the same thing again, which is a good thing or moving away from plastics towards something that's a better material. So there are things that we can do. And from the from the sort of, you know, um, person in the street perspective, I think it's about, you know, thinking first, do I actually need this? How can I buy something that's going to last longer? Don't worry too much about the materials. Just think about buying something that you're really going to love and treasure, or buying something that when you finish with it, it still has value so you can sell it on. So thinking about this longevity is is the most important thing. Yeah, and I saw that article you shared on LinkedIn. And if you get the chance to follow Catherine on LinkedIn, do, because she shares some really interesting stuff. But um, I play football on uh, AstroTurf and I was like, oh, no. And I was thinking, actually, Sarah, you haven't played every day, like training. So I think you're going to be all right. But it's it's this sort of stuff that you're like, oh, my God, I didn't know. I didn't think. And it's that sort of awakening to some of these issues that is, you know, it's it's good for people to understand that it touches you, whether you think it does or, it, it you know, mm. it does touch you. So that's really useful. Um, okay. Now, we've, we might have covered this, but I'm going to ask. You speak about this stuff, um, and I suspect that some of your audiences are sceptical, not bought in. Um, what are some of the challenges that you have encountered in getting people and companies on board? Mm. We might have covered it, but there might be some other stuff. Well, it, it is a really big change, and that's scary for everybody. You know, no, nobody likes change that's uncertain and and requires big shifts in the way that you think about things and people find it difficult to imagine the future just as we saw with covid and before that with digital 
but we can look back on examples of what happened there and I think with COVID many of us could see the kind of things that we should be doing that people were stepping away from and we saw the consequences of that so it's about finding those examples where you kind of had a glimpse of the future thought we should do a and everybody else decided to do do the easier path of b and how wrong that went and kind of use those stories in your own business to kind of get people to to think clearly and to really spend the time getting under the skin of this it's not it's not a quick fix it is really complicated and i remember from my days at dhl um there were a few years where i was doing risk, risk management for major client projects And I remember everybody was happy to do a couple of hours brainstorming about the risks that we might face on this project. And that was the easy bit, you know, mind mapping it all. The difficult bit was getting people to put the time in afterwards for planning to either keep an eye on whether those risks were getting worse or uh, moving away and then to develop action plans, you know, ahead of the risk (laughs) happening. And that was the really hard bit where, you know, I I just became unpopular. But because I'm, you know, (laughs) like a dog with a bone um, and that was what I was being paid to do, then that's what I did. Um, But I remember people just wanted to get on and do it, not to think about the bigger picture. So it is this kind of, you know, having a process and making sure that you're having the conversations and that, you know, those conversations are going to be difficult. And if they're not difficult and kind of, um, you know, keeping you awake at night and resulting in some uh, animated discussions and even arguments, then you're probably not going deep enough and kind of accept that this is that's part of the process. It's going to get messy. It's going to get, um, you know, it's a wicked problem. You know, you're not going to solve it in a half half day offsite. But it's about, you know, setting the direction and then thinking what's the first thing that we can do and what's the next thing and so on. Absolutely. I think it's about committing to the to the journey um, without actually even knowing the destination, mm. but like you say, taking it one step at a time. Um, one thing that I'm interested in, I think you know, people will be particularly interested in from the speaking perspective is, have you switched up your content or delivery style over the course of the you know, 10 years that you, well, actually it's longer than that since 2011, talking about this stuff? to meet people more where they are and bring them on board? Yeah. Now I try and include more stories of disruptors. So I'm not just talking about the circular economy as one set of challenges, but trying to help businesses understand that we've been through these kind of systemic changes before when within a few years, like with digital, everything's been completely transformed. And just as with digital, the circular economy is going to affect every part of your business, back office, front office, everything. And unless you start to really think about that, then, you know, you're not going to you're going to be left behind. And I think digital is recent enough in most people's memories for them to kind of think, oh, yeah, here are the things that we did wrong. Here are the here's the place where we didn't spend enough time thinking about the implications. So, you know, hopefully people have got long enough memories to do that although I was kind of um listening to the thing about the the Silicon Valley bank um in the news this week that you know kind of uh, suddenly got into difficulties and Gillian Tett who's I think she's the Financial Times American um editor now but she's got an anthropology background and she's really interesting in in interesting in in terms of the the sort of um social context of this and she was saying that 
now there are too many people who can't remember high interest rates. I certainly can. You know, I got caught out with 16% mortgage rates and, and the house price crash, crash that followed that. But people had just, you know, lost sight of the fact that things could change. And so weren't looking at the signals and hadn't thought about what they would do. What are the what ifs? And so that, you know, there's just so many areas where businesses just get fixed on this is the way that we've always done it. This is the way that we're all going to do it. And yet the evidence is everywhere that 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 doesn't work. You know, things have to change. There's always a disruption. Absolutely. And how important is speaking as a vehicle to get your message out there and to to build that sort of consultancy practice? Because, I mean, obviously, this is your business. You're absolutely passionate about it. And I know that you shy away from being called an expert, but I've never come across anyone who's so well read. Like, you, you know so much, but you're, you know, you always learning like it's it's a Mm. it's a journey for you like perhaps you say I'm not an expert because there's so much more to know you know I think you are um, whether you embrace that or not but how important is speaking to to you uh, as a vehicle to build up you know the the practice and getting into companies to make those changes and actually making people aware of them yeah it's it's very important and it's the thing I'm most focused on getting better at because it feels like the number one way to help people engage with the topic to begin with so that you can open up windows of possibilities for people and help businesses understand the systemic reasons why business as usual is a race to the bottom but here are the things that you could be doing differently instead and there's a quote I've started using recently from um, a guy called Alvin Toffler who says that you know that the literates of the future are going to be the ones who can learn unlearn and relearn and that's kind of you know everything's changing so fast around us that that's what we have to be doing all the time you know so I'm open to I'm open to other alternatives maybe maybe the circular economy well I know the circular economy doesn't go far enough you can do things that are circular but cause what's called rebound where we end up with more consumption because suddenly circular's made something cheaper or more acceptable so there is no perfect solution but there are lots of things we can be doing to make every business more future fit and profitable and to, you know, to be um, loved by customers, investors, employees and suppliers. I love that. And thank you for sharing so many real, like there's practical strategies in there for people to sort of to grab hold of and starting points that you've shared. Um, and I, I will sort of give you the opportunity to, you know, um, if add anything, if you think that we've missed something out, but I'd like to switch into our standard questions. Now I know that you listen to to the show, so you've got a heads up on this. But let's start with the first question. You know, what does speaking mean to you? What has it done for you? I guess it's given me a route in to lots of businesses, community organisations, policymakers, and so on to try and help them think differently about the future yeah and and you've spoken already for some big organizations like united nations yeah i do do some talks for the united nations they have a, a an open um circular economy course every year um so i do a couple of lectures on that uh, alongside two of my um former podcast guests brian bauer from al Gramo, um and sandra goldmark the author of a really interesting book called fixation about why we love 
objects and and what causes us to get things repaired. So yeah, so that so I really enjoy doing doing that every year, and then um, you know keynotes for businesses and conferences and so on. Yeah, and and there is another form of speaking you do, which is your po- your own podcast. Mm. How has that been for you? Because that I mean, people dismissed that speaking. You know, at the, at the end of the day, that is speaking and getting your message out there. How has that been? Really interesting. I think the number one thing that it's done for me is engage me with all these disruptive businesses. Because that's what I try and focus on is, you know, small businesses and organisations that are doing circular things. And that's where I'm seeing the the kind of signs of change. So it really helps keep me optimistic and it helps me understand how those circular strategies are creating these viable, profitable businesses that are really going places. Excellent. And um, you've been on a journey with your speaking. Um, Is there a gig... Uh, that you experienced where you're like oh no I want to forget about that one what what happened you happy to share it yeah this was this goes back decades to the to the 80s and was probably well not probably it put me off speaking for for several more decades so I was I went on a course to be a motorcycle instructor so I was a, I was a you know big um, fan of motorbikes. I didn't even learn to drive a car till I was twenty five because I'd managed okay with with motorbikes and couldn't see the point. Um, so I went off to to do this instructor's course, and out of nowhere we were suddenly told we had to stand up and talk for five minutes on you know some random topic, and I just absolutely froze. It wasn't a big group of people. There were probably only ten people in the room, but these were people. You know, the the instructors who were teaching us, plus the other people on the course with me, they were all people that I looked up to. And so the whole thing was just terrifying. I can't I can't even remember what happened, but it just kind of (laughs) scared the pants off me. And then um, years later, when I was at Kellogg's, I was suddenly having to do presentations about what my team was doing or standing for my boss at things. And um, again, I was just terrified. And my boss, the same one who comes out with all those phrases like expert and so on, he just kept putting me up, signing me up for more presentation skills courses. <laughs> but I never got any better because the same the same terror was there until it kind of dawned on me that instead of slopey shouldering it to, you know, somebody else in my team or making up some reason why I couldn't couldn't do it, I was just going to have to get to grips with it. And I got to the got to the kind of essence of well, why is this so terrifying? Because I wasn't clear on what I was going to say, and I think that now means that I kind of over prepare and over rehearse because that's the only way that I'm going to feel confident confident about something. And I know that when I wing it, I don't have a problem talking about it, but I might not I might not get the key points across, and I'll probably go on for three times longer than I should do. I think it's an interesting question for you here. Something that I talk about in the past, and it'd be interesting to get your insight on it, having been in the corporate world and now outside doing slightly different type of speaking. I always think people who've spoken in the corporate world um, don't get what they need to do the same. It's a different job that you need to do once you're speaking outside and you're speaking about something that, you know, like you, that you're passionate about, that you have a business around, would you say that's fair? And what would you, how would you make that distinction between the two? Yeah, I would say it's fair. And I guess that's probably 
held me back a lot kind of you know keeping going with this this more corporate style not having loads and loads of words on a slide you know kind of getting getting past that but still having something that's very slide based and structured and probably you know a bit a bit heavy going so trying to find ways of doing things that are more story based um i did a did a short talk a while ago where i just used props on zoom um and that worked really well and you know it it seemed to engage the audience and the good thing was i could see everybody on the screen in front of me so it was you know not quite the same as, <laughs> as in real life but much better so yeah trying to experiment with things and um yeah i guess trying to be a bit more bold um as my husband says you're never too old to be bold um so yeah trying trying to get a bit more um uh left field i guess I think you're doing a great job. Um, okay, next question then. What's the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Well, there were quite a few candidates for this. But I think the one that opened my eyes, obviously there's, you know, Sense of Sustainability by Ken Webster and, and Craig Johnson that I mentioned earlier. Um, but a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not not by me, all about cognitive dissonance. And I read that probably five or six years ago, and it really changed my outlook on everything. And they look at various fields of expertise, from the law to the medical profession to researchers, and they look at how it's possible for people to be influenced by the wrong thing um, or to just get bound up in a myth or a you know an identity and not be able to see past that despite all the evidence to the contrary but it shows how easy it is and they kind of describe a pyramid there's a there's a an experiment they cite where uh, students sitting an exam are given the opportunity to cheat and they've just been given a question that wasn't on the syllabus so nobody could have prepared for this question and then they're given the opportunity to cheat and they interview them all afterwards to find out you know what what they're now thinking and the ones who chose to cheat justify it and sort of say you know i need i need the results for my job everybody's going to be cheating or you know all these justifications and the ones who chose not to cheat have kind of gone the other way and that anybody who cheats should be thrown off the course and you know it's absolutely immoral and so on and they kind of describe this process as being like you know when you make the decision you're at the top of a pyramid but very quickly, you're at the base of the pyramid, miles away from the from the person who took the opposite route. And we can, you know, once you start to think about that, you can see it in so many areas of discourse, particularly now with, you know, identity politics and, um, you know, the way we talked about woke <laughs> and the, the woke culture earlier on. And, you know, kind of people getting on one side or the other and then not being able to see any other point of view. And I think this is one of the big issues around our um, you know, way of way of living and way of being these days. And that's interesting. I know it's something that I talked briefly about with Anne Yanza, who you uh, introduced me to. So thank you for that. And I know that you picked up on, but it ties back to that book then that this mistakes are made. It's interesting. So there's some correlation between that, their position, their sort of um, idea and what Anne was saying. Mm, yeah, and there are other other good books on the Scout Mindset is another one which has got 
uh, a set of tools to help you be more of a scout um, than a kind of, you know, she, she contrasts scout and soldier mindset. So soldiers just kind of, you know, it's right or wrong, immediate conclusion, which is what our brain wants to do. Our brain doesn't like uncertainty, but trying to have more of a scout mindset. And, you know, people who celebrate being wrong because it means, you know, I've learned something. So just different ways of thinking. Lovely. Brilliant. OK, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Um, I guess the frequent one from my husband that you're never too old to be bold and to just kind of, you know, go for things. I love that. And you embody that. I I, I always enjoy speaking with you because I always learn something because you're always learning something. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, uh, last question. If you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? A comedian, a UK comedian called Mark Steele, uh, who on Radio 4 does Mark Steele Goes to Town. And the reason I'd like to have him as a mentor is he's funny in a very empathetic way. So when he does this goes to town, he you know turns up at a, uh, a random town in the UK, looks into the history and culture and idiosyncrasies of that town. And then people in the audience are from that town and he kind of gently teases them about some of these things. But he does it in a way that everybody joins in. And so it's it's kind of holding people to account it's shining a light on things that they might be embarrassed about or you know that that just look weird but he does it in a way that's that's very inclusive and and kind of encouraging so um to have some advice from mark Steele about how to do that with business audiences on a on a really difficult subject i think would be would be great he is great he is great well listen thank you so much for sharing all of that uh, great advice for businesses and individuals about how we can move forward and make a little mark in this wicked problem. And I want to know uh, where is the best place for people to go if they want to book you to speak to their organisation, if they want to get you in to help them do better and and make some uh, progress in this area, where's the best place for them to go? They can get in touch easily through my business website, which is rethinkglobal.info. They can find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only other one other, Catherine Wheatman, and she's a, um, a chemical uh, academic. So you should find me on there talking about the circular economy. And then you can also search for Circulate Economy Podcast on LinkedIn, on the web, or in your favourite podcast app. Brilliant. And is there anything else that you feel that you need to share or say uh, in order to call this interview complete? Just to say thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Thanks for doing your podcast, which I've just learned so much from. And I know I've got so much more to learn from. It's all about, you know, learning, unlearning and relearning. So unlearning all that corporate stuff. Um, so, yeah, thanks for doing that and for all the work that you're doing to help people get their messages out there and, you know, uh, do do good stuff in the world. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. You inspire me every time. As I say, every time I talk to you, Catherine, you inspire me. Thank you so much for your time and uh, everything else. And um, have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks for some brilliant questions. How about that then? I do genuinely love working with Catherine. She's so knowledgeable and wise and yet so open to seeing new perspectives and 
probably because this issue is such a wicked problem to solve. Um, it, she has to be because no one's got the exact answer at the moment. She also shares brilliant content on LinkedIn and her podcast is a great resource if you want to find out more about this stuff. And there's also some brilliant stories on there too. And as I said, I love the way she's able to make things real and tangible, even when they are so nebulous and complicated, you know, being able to chart a path through this stuff, um, helping organisations to do that is a, is a great thing to be doing. If something resonated with you or inspired you, please do reach out uh, to Catherine and let her know. And do also check her website if you want to book her to speak to your organisation or to help you increase momentum in this area. Well, that's it for this show. All that's left for me to say is thank you so much again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. And if you got value, do take a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or wherever you're listening. I will catch you next time. But until then, you know what I'm going to say. Don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. One of the things that I teach you on my masterclass has been a game changer for lots of people. The trouble is that we're often too close to our thing to present it in the way our audience needs to see it and hear it to get the results that we want. That's where this powerful live interactive masterclass comes in. I'm going to be taking you through my proven six-step heart map blueprint for creating powerful authentic talks and content using stories that connect with your audience and get them into action here's some feedback from previous attendees definitely a value-packed two hours for anyone wanting to engage with their audience well worth signing up for sarah's masterclass if you want to make your content connect with your audience recommend it massively best two hours i've spent all year i know your time is precious that's why I guarantee that if you don't leave this masterclass knowing exactly what you need to include in your next talk to get more engagement and sales, then I require you to ask for your money back. Grab your space to work with me on your talk at the next masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass.